Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my banter buddy in crime. Gabe Darrick, howdy. So every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. Which movie did it better? How did this happen? And what would make a better third movie? So today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about artificial worlds, Dark City and The Matrix. So Gabe, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies, which are both about heroes realising that the world they live in is a construct. So on the 1st of March, 1998, Dark City was released. Here's how IMDb describes it in its synopsis. Man struggles with memories of his past, which includes a wife he cannot remember and a nightmarish world without a son. Now, shortly afterwards, or basically a year later, on the 31st of March, 1999, The Matrix was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. A computer hacker learns from mysterious rebels about the true nature of his reality and his role in the war against its controllers. So, Gabe, let's start with what these films mean to us. When did you first see Dark City when it was released? And what was that experience like? I saw Dark City at the movies when it came out. I don't remember it being a particularly packed cinema, but uh, I was there probably in the opening week. Weirdly, I'd also read before I'd even seen it, the tie-in novelization. I don't know how I got it or particularly why I read it. Maybe I read it because I was amped for the film. So I kind of went in knowing everything that was going to happen in the movie, which didn't diminish the experience of it. I mean, I saw it at the movies and then watched it subsequently on DVD. What about you? Yeah, I saw myself at the movies. I recall... It was 98, and so I was working at this art house cinema at the time while studying at uni. There was this great deal where anyone who worked at any cinema in Canberra, and for international listeners, that's Australia's capital, but a very small city of only about 350, 400,000 people compared to Sydney, which is twice as large, sorry, five times <laughs> larger. No, 10 times larger. Right. How many cinemas, though, for the 40,000 people who live in Canberra? No, 200,000 people. No, however many people. Out of zero. <laughs> Well, at the time then, 21 years ago in 98, there was only one art house cinema, but we actually owned two. So they kind of bought the second one and different names. They were Electric Shadows and Centre Cinema. And so basically, that was in the CBD, the middle of the city. So you'd have to kind of commute from the burbs to go to that one or two art house cinemas and that's it. But being a small city, there was a reciprocal deal with the other commercial cinemas, the ones based shopping centres around Canberra. And so, the deal was if you're a worker in any capacity, like a candy bar guy or a ticket seller or whatever, an usher, you could actually get this card that was kind of analogous to the infamous McDonald's gold card, where you could basically flash that at any cinema in Canberra, like the other cinemas, and get to see free movies. And I was a student at the time. And look, it has the magic F word free in front of it, you're going to take it up. So I'd see all these films in this window between 1998 and 2000. And you know how people talk about the music back in their day? Like, ah, oh, movies and music was better back in my day. Well, for me, my day was this 98, 99, 2000 window where I got to see so many free movies. I'd often see movies which I wouldn't have seen ordinarily, but it was free. So I'd go and see them. And often I did want to hang around at work at the art house cinema because it was work. So I'd often go and see more movies at the commercial cinemas. And even though I was studying independent film, European cinema at uni in like film theory, where we're studying German expressionism cinema, which we'll get to in relation to Dark City, like The Cabin of Dr. Caligari, 
Nosferatu and so on, I'd go and see kind of like the Big Mac of movies as a bit of sort of relief. And so I saw it at a commercial cinema in Canberra, and it was a pretty small audience, as I recall. I can't recall the film having much publicity in terms of advertising back in the day when TV advertising, pre-internet trailers kind of captured your attention. So I went along with pretty low expectations, and I really enjoyed it at the time. And then I guess I saw it many more times after that on DVD. But it was a cinema experience. I think you'd agree that both these films really benefit from being on first viewing a big screen immersive experience because they're pretty heady in some of their concepts and they're visually incredible. So to sort of be surrounded by that on a large screen, I think is worth something. Yeah, although I suppose it's interesting because I only vaguely recall seeing Dark City at the cinema, but I've seen it many more times since on DVD. And the version that I've got on DVD is the director's cut. So that's the version that I'm much more familiar with which I think adds about 15 minutes of extra footage and very noticeably changes the, like drops the narration from the beginning of the film and is probably a much better version of the movie. So that's the version I've actually watched most recently a number of times. So it's like Blade Runner where they added the voiceover to a neo-noir genre, very similar to Blade Runner, both sci-fi noir films. But was that, do you think, added in the theatrical version to give clarity because they didn't trust audiences to understand what was going on? Totally. I think it's almost identical to Blade Runner in a way that it was sort of like a studio-mandated change. And like Blade Runner as well, it arguably doesn't improve the film whatsoever. It adds a whole bunch of exposition to the top that probably takes a lot of the mystery out of the movie. It puts you way ahead of the characters. It sort of describes the world and who the strangers are and what they're doing. So instead of sort of learning all of that organically, as the characters do, you're kind of given all this information by Kiefer Sutherland at the top. You can kind of understand why they wanted to, I guess. It's a pretty complex movie, but it's one of those sort of fundamentals of what you sort of screenwriting-wise maybe shouldn't do. Why would you want your audience to be way ahead of the characters and discovering things as they do? But they put it in there. Yeah, totally. I think the only saving grace for both Blade Runner and Dark City in having that voiceover narration at the start or throughout the film to punctuate some of the scenes, at least the classic idea of the voiceover matches the genre. I don't think it improves either film, but at least that whole idea of a gumshoe-type detective talking to the audience, like I think a voiceover narration in that particular genre is as iconic as how noir films also have Venetian blinds and femme fatales. So at least there's that saving grace. I think you get a voiceover narration on like a superhero film now, like Avengers or something, it would stand out more. So I think at least the studio got away with it a little bit better, but I agree. Why would you want the audience to be ahead of the character in a mystery? Because I think it was Hitchcock who said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's thriller, mystery, and suspense. And the difference between those three different types of subgenres is whether the audience is behind what the protagonist is doing or is discovering information at the same time as the protagonist or is ahead of the protagonist and the protagonist finds out what the audience already knows. Is that right? I think it was him and it was something to that effect. I mean, I think, didn't Peter Anderson say something similar, like he'd prefer people to be 45 minutes behind than 30 seconds in front? Totally. And I think for classic films, and we'll be watching a lot of films which we'd call rewatchable films because they stand the test of time, but also you can enjoy them as much on a second, third, fourth, tenth viewing. I think if you are a little bit behind and trying to play catch up as to what's going on, particularly in a film like these films, which have elements of mystery to them, you want to then get rewarded on a second 
viewing after that. And if the yeah, totally. film is too much exposition on first instance, it's not satisfying, particularly if the film's trying to be a mystery, but also it just becomes weaker and weaker on subsequent viewings. I think there's a tendency these days, particularly among sort of studio films, is you never want the audience to ever at any point be like, I don't understand what's going on. And like Dark City or Blade Runner, like you say, those were probably attempts to make sure no one is ever like, I don't know what's going on. I should look down at my phone now or vague out and think about lunch. Totally. I think the point you raised earlier actually is in seeing this film at the cinema where there isn't the opportunity to quickly watch it again to clarify a plot point, these types of films being cult films, both Dark City and The Matrix, really benefited from that late 90s, early 2000 adoption of DVD where certain films like Scorsese's films like Taxi Driver. Scorsese did in fact make Taxi Driver. (laughs) (laughs) I just totally blanked just then. And classic films by Coppola, cult films, really benefited from being rewatched over and over again at home. And so I think it's really interesting in the way that we digest stories is that you recall most vividly the one that you saw at home more than the one you saw once in the cinema. I was 16 or 15 years old when I saw this at the cinema, so it's been a while. Yeah. Well, that brings me to The Matrix, actually, because The Matrix actually has changed in its look, its colour palette between the theatrical version and the subsequent DVD and Blu-ray. So, tell me, when and how did you first see The Matrix? I mean, I think like everybody, I was just frothing for The Matrix to come out. It's definitely one of those movies that felt like everyone was absolutely pumped to see it. I think the trailers were pretty mind-blowing. and So, I probably saw it a couple of times at the cinema. To be honest, I kind of don't really remember that, but I do remember actually. It's interesting you brought up the, the DVD and stuff is that I had a mate whose parents had a TV repair business and they obviously also sold TVs. And I think plasma televisions had just sort of come out when the Matrix was released onto sort of home video. So after soccer training or whatever every week, would go around to this bloke's shop and just rewatch the Matrix on the giant plasma TV on DVD. Because like none of us had plasmas or probably even at that time DVD players still had the VHS. That's also weirdly my memory of sort of seeing the Matrix was watching it on repeat in widescreen on a plasma TV in a TV repair shop. That's great. I mean, I think one of the great things about this podcast series is going to be us describing how formative that first viewing was, because even though we watch things subsequently down the track, this is that classic cliche about the magic of cinema, isn't it, where basically you're in a space where you remember it one way. And then you process the same story down the track, like multiple times when you catch it on TV or you buy it as one of your first DVDs, or in your case, you're watching it on a plasma, which back in the day then was probably pretty damn expensive. Oh, they were like 15,000 bucks or something. Yeah. And also widescreen too. Yeah, totally. Well, that's the thing. Like, I think for people who maybe weren't around when DVDs came out, the bump in quality from VHS to DVD was pretty significant. I mean, if you go back and watch a VHS, something on tape now, you'd probably be shocked about how kind of low quality it is. And, you know, obviously DVD to Blu-ray, that's not insignificant, but that VHS to DVD was really a thing, and especially with widescreen, big TV. Yeah, and also too, the colour palette, like the way that Plasma and now LCD processes blacks is so important. I recall on VHS and then cheaper DVDs, the blacks were just so blocky and films like Dark City, I mean, it's in the title, right? It's dark. And some of the Matrix have a lot of scenes set at night, really maximizing that neo noir, high contrast aesthetic with lots of shadows, street lights, spotlights, Venetian blinds, scenes set at night. And see those sort of films on a cheap TV 
it just falls apart. Like the image just disintegrates into these black little sort of pixels. So you would have seen it in a really good way. Like back in the day, you're seeing it on DVD, high resolution bump from VHS and on widescreen and on a big screen and on plasma, which handles blacks better. So, oh, mate, you are ahead of the curve. And you've got to imagine that probably The Matrix was one of the films that really drove consumers to pick up DVD as a format. Yeah, the film did really well at the box office, which we'll get to later in the pod. But that film being a pretty dense film in terms of its themes and having revolutionary action, it was revolutionary in many ways, aesthetically, thematically, story-wise, blending different genres, kung fu and sci-fi. That film was going to benefit from being rewatchable on, quote, home video down the track. But I think it would have really pushed DVD penetration. Like there was that window of time between around 98 to 2004 or 2008 where DVD just exploded and just a film could do pretty well at the box office. But if it made a bucket load of cash at home, it justify a sequel because there was that kind of tail end income to justify going back into a cinema later on. Whereas nowadays, that's eroded. And a film like The Matrix, I don't think you could rediscover in that way. I guess you could on Netflix, on a streaming service. But I think there was that thing about people buying their own DVD and with great pride, putting it on, watching the behind the scenes featurettes and really cherishing the actual film itself, but also the making of the film. I mean, I presume people don't really buy physical media these days, except for sort of collectors like me and, and you who really like that uh, Blu-ray quality. But yeah, I mean, back then, sort of everyone owned The Matrix on DVD and they also owned that three-pack anime with Ghost in the Shell, Ninja Scroll and Akira, which all heavily uh, influenced The Matrix. So there you go. That's so true. Other funny thing about watching this film is I recall seeing The Matrix in the cinema. I saw it twice myself. And I was used to the colour aesthetic of the poster and also the colour correction. And this was in the era where... I think The Matrix was actually pre-digital grading because I think the first film was Brother Where Art Thou, which was around, what, 2000, 2001? Yeah, I think so. So, The Matrix was colour-corrected chemically. It was shot on film, colour-corrected in a lab. But it was a film that was really heavily colour-corrected in comparison to other films of the time. Like, if you look at films like our classic Michael Bay films that we sincerely like, The Guilty Pleasures of The Rock, Bad Boys, a similar film is Con Air. Those films have pretty naturalistic palettes, whereas this film was like massively desaturated. And I recall at the time the film felt, maybe it was the poster design, had more of a sort of purple look going on, like the text was purple and so on. But it's interesting that when they first did the, I think it was the DVD release, I think kept the colour palette because the DVD came out before the sequels, The Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. Do you mean The Matrix Green, that kind of- Well, I think- it, that people are, oh, the This Matrix is the funny Green. thing. I think if you look at the original version, which I think is the DVD version and also the Blu-ray 4K UHD, that has more of a kind of yellowy tone. Yeah, right. But when the Blu-ray came out around the mid-2000s, they actually colour corrected it to resemble the greenish hue of Matrix 2 and 3. Oh, so they put more green in. Did people like that? No, they hated it. Because, for example, Keanu Reeves' face goes from being a kind of yellowy hue to being like totally sapped of any colour at all to being like white. It wasn't quite as high contrast as, say, Bleach Bypass look like you'd see in Three Kings from around the same era, but it certainly increased the contrast and took a lot of colour out. 
And when they released the 4K UHD, a lot of the sci-fi film nerds and color correction gurus and so on have put up screen grabs showing you before and after. So I think the best way to watch this film is either DVD, which has the original color, or 4K UHD, but not the 1080p Blu-ray because that's the one where, unfortunately, they screwed the pooch and trying to make it look like two and three, they just totally ruined it. So that's funny though because I have a certain memory of the color in the cinema. Like there's a kung fu scene with Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves doing that classic. Oh, stop trying to hit me and hit me. Yeah. And that one, if you might recall when you first saw it, has like a kind of yellowy kind of hue. Yeah, right. But it's much more greenish comparatively in, I think it was the Blu-ray. So, But I guess it's that sort of scene that just sort of so indelibly marked pop culture after The Matrix came out, right? Totally. We'll get to that. The one thing we should say before we jump onto, we'll do a review first of Dark City and then we'll do a review of The Matrix and we'll do a combined review of both after that. But what we should say as Aussies is- you and I, back in 98, 99, were also heavily motivated to see these films because these were two of the biggest Hollywood studio films that had been shot in Australia ever. And particularly- And that was Disney, a huge deal. Where we live. Totally. Yeah, that's right. We both work in the film TV industry and we knew people who were aspiring to be in the industry, but you'd hear stories about someone who was a crew member working on it and what a big deal it was. Because Australians tend to be- a little bit culturally insecure like that. We don't feel perhaps we're big enough to keep up with the Joneses like Britain or the US. And it was a seal of endorsement, like a rubber stamp that, oh, wow, even though this production came here, I'm thinking Matrix came here for tax breaks, which the government did to try and inject cash into the economy, into the local film industry, and to try and raise the expertise of crew, there was a sense like, oh, wow, we've been chosen to help out. And then there was this amazing sense of, the Australian crew on both films trying to prove their professionalism and their international expertise out of pride, but also for the hope that this would be like a positive precedent so that more international films would shoot in Australia. And you probably knew a few people at the time who in some way worked or knew someone who worked on these films. Yeah, I mean, I knew a bunch of people who I think I knew some people who worked in the camera department of both. And I think it was pretty monumental for Australia. Correct me if I'm wrong, but before The Matrix, was there any huge movies. I know MI2 shot maybe the year later, and but it sort of felt like it was the first mega budget movie. And interestingly, actually, um, apparently rather kind of disparagingly, or you certainly wouldn't get away with this these days, I think one of the producers had called these Australian crews like Mexicans with mobile phones or something, which is pretty disrespectful to everybody. So yeah, it was a really kind of emergent time for Australian crews on big budget movies. Of course, now just a couple of them shoot all the time. We've got studios in every big city. But um, back then, it felt like a real start of something. Yeah, I recall actually uh, Joel Silver on the behind the scenes. And again, rest in peace DVD and hard media where you'd have these behind the scenes featurettes. But Joel Silver, who was the most prominent front-facing producer on The Matrix, speaking of mobile phones, I recall that they were amazed how advanced Australia was compared to the US at the time back in and they made The Matrix in Sydney because Australians have always been pretty early adopters of technology and mobile phones were becoming increasingly ubiquitous. Speaking of that quote you gave before, it wasn't like you had to be a stockbroker or a doctor to have a mobile phone, a cell phone. Like basic people had the classic 6110, I think it was. 
was that the, the classic Nokia phone that was kind of that crossover phone that was quite small and people played Snake on it? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, classic. 5110, 6110. Yeah, one of those two. Yeah, and I, d- I recall that um, that was becoming pretty ubiquitous. And when they shot the film here, they were just actually amazed that here they are shooting this, not prophetic, but a ahead of the curve science fiction film about the future. And they were really impressed how Australia culturally seemed to have really embraced technology. And that's kind of cool because of that dovetail effect where they have that Nokia phone. Oh, the one Keanu has in the movie? Or the 8110? Yeah, 8110. That's right. And so that was like the much more expensive one. Wasn't it a flip phone? It kind of like came- it Didn't the bottom out, flip out? Uh, too, too good for, for Australians, mate. All right. <laughs> I think I recall the Wachowskis saying that they chose the 8110 and added a spring to it. So it kind yeah, of like right. popped out to sort of shock Neo and shock the audience. Because it looked really cool. And I think it's really funny that 20 years after, we're at the 20-year anniversary of The Matrix now in 2019. I think it's funny that just in the last few months, Motorola is bringing back a modern version of one of the other iconic phones of the time, which is the Razer, which is, again, a flip phone. Not the 8110, as Nokia has been sold on to someone else. But there's that same nostalgia that people had for certain mobile phones of that era. This film, stand, we'll talk about it later on, but stands up so well. But I actually think that phone stands out well too, even though it's not a smartphone with huge screen. It still looks cool. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point actually, and we should probably talk about it later. But I guess mobile phones is one of the few little bits in the movie that does date it a touch, but maybe the Matrix is just permanently 1999. So it's just a period Matrix. Very meta. All right, let's jump into the reviews then, shall we? And we'll circle back to the Matrix. So let's start with... um. First of all, quick history lesson as to how we got here, because this is the Twin Movies podcast, and we're sometimes asking ourselves, well, hang on, how do these two movies, which are really similar, actually get made and released at almost the same time? So I did a bit of a, I would suggest it was a deep dive. I'll just say it was a shallow dive into the history of these two films. That's basically code for watching the making of featurettes and Googling, and that's about it. But (laughs) the background of this is that Alex Proyas, one of the screenwriters and director of Dark City, he'd made The Crow before, which shares many visual cues to Dark City, another noir film. That was more of a horror noir. Is that how you describe it? I know. It's sort of some sort of industrial vibe, I guess. Yeah. And this film is Dark City was very much a kind of sci-fi neo-noir. And- that film had a trouble production, unfortunately, because the main lead, Brandon Lee, died during production and he had to actually use revolutionary CG at the time to try and recreate that character to finish the film. That's how he got to Dark City. The Wachowskis had written, I think it's that film called Assassins, isn't it? The one with yeah, Antonio yeah, Banderas. And yeah, Stallone. But they didn't have any directing credits. So apparently Joel Silver said, look, you need to actually prove you can direct. You obviously can write. They'd been working on comics. They were really great visualists and had worked with storyboard artists to try and convey their vision of the film. But he actually encouraged them to go ahead and make Bound first, which was a really small indie film, small in budget, small in stories, small in characters. It's set mainly in three locations to try and get prove their directing chops. And it's funny to see that film because I really enjoy that film. The unique aspect of the film was meant to be the fact that it had two gay female leads, but sort of still use some of those neo-noir characteristics. And that's a fun little film. But when you watch that film, you don't go, oh, okay, let's give these guys 60 to 70 US million dollars to go make a sci-fi philosophical kung fu film. But I suppose it proved enough of their expertise 
to get there. But where we landed is this just seems like coincidence. It doesn't seem from my research that either of these films came about with a studio trying to compete with the other to get this idea made first. In fact, to the contrary, it seems it was actually a hard sell for both studios to make either film. And it's just a case of the zeitgeist where people had similar ideas about constructed artificial worlds and basically convinced and pushed and cajoled the bigwigs with the money to get these films up. So there was no race between the two. No. There was not like a dueling. They just sort of both happened at the exactly. same time to have similarities. And that'll be a the theme, I think, of this podcast. It's just trying to decipher, was there a race to get this good idea? Like, we'll talk later on about another twin movies group, which was Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down. That was a race to get one concept up, whereas these films seem to independently come about. In fact, Proyos was Australian and- I don't think there was much of a crossover with the gestation of the Wachowskis film, The Matrix. So, that's interesting. So, let's jump into a review of Dark City. So, Gabe, Dark City, did you like it? What worked for you about this film and what didn't work for you? I look broadly, I liked it a lot. I liked it when I first saw it and I still like it now. I think it's a pretty intriguing movie, feels fairly unique, unique world, characters, story. It's very nicely made. I mean, nowadays I probably watch it more for the kind of aesthetic sensibility of it rather than the, I don't know, plot story and characters. I mean, being a mystery and all, I know how it ends and stuff. But I guess what I really love about the movie is a few of the sort of technical elements. I love the cinematography, like Darius Wolski shot the hell out of Dark City. And I love the music. Trevor Jones' music is just off the chain. I remember having the soundtrack album and when I was a kid, we made short films and we scored so many of them to the music from Dark City. It's just this big orchestral banger that just sort of builds. It's really great. I agree with almost everything you've said. For me, this film isn't a film that I go back and revisit and watch again and again. At the time at the cinema, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the audacity of the film. I think it was a somehow a fluke, a lot of hard work, the right time and the right place for this film to get up. I don't think it's a film that is audience-friendly by today's standards in an era dominated by superhero films which have pretty simple themes and feel comparatively cookie-cutter. I can't imagine this film getting up today with this sort of budget. A director who had proven himself to a limited degree with a sort of film in the noir genre, but it's not like he had huge experience. He was pretty young, Alex Proyas. He was Australian. This film's been made all the way over in Australia, so kind of out of sight, out of mind. So I actually admire that this film got up in the first place. I like most of the film. I agree with you. I think visually it's spectacular. I think the combination of perhaps CG and practical effects is amazing. Like whether you've done a bit of wanky German expressionism film theory like I had at the time, I mentioned earlier Nosferatu and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you can see those influences in the production design. Like, it is spectacular when you see these buildings twist and twirl and grow, much like, I guess, a time lapse of a sunflower following the sun or a plant growing out of the soil you see in a nature documentary. Like, to see concrete and metal just twist and turn and grow as the landscape in Dark City changes every night is incredible. Like, It's visually amazing. Some things I'll get to kind of bug me about the film, and that's sort of where I think The Matrix does a better job with the concept about an artificial world. I'll get to that in our kind of combined review of both films. But all in all, I really enjoy it. 
I admire its originality. I think the acting is fantastic. I really like the kind of gumshoe style dialogue. And it's weird. Like, it's a weird film. Totally. And I think you're right that Dark City probably wouldn't be made today. And weirdly, probably The Matrix wouldn't be made today either. But I guess I'm always attracted to those kinds of movies, movies that you go, oh, how or why did this get made? Like, who thought this would be a great idea? And sometimes, really, who thought this would be a good idea? But that sort of melding of noir and then sort of the sort of philosophical concepts and Last Thursdayism or solipsism or explorations of what is it to be human or free will or whatever. I mean, I guess you just don't really see a lot of that in mainstream big movies. Which is what's great about both of these films, I guess. Yeah, it is interesting because at least The Matrix has kung fu and sci-fi or I guess more accessible sci-fi to be more palatable and accepted by an audience or by a studio head who's pressing the green light to fund a film. Yeah, someone kicks someone's ass every 15 minutes. Yeah, and there are guns. Yeah, totally. I mean, The Matrix is an action sci-fi film, whereas Dark City is unquestionably a darker, slower mystery that unfolds. It's more of a classic neo-noir story where the protagonist, the guy who wakes up being pursued by a classic detective with old hat and the trench coat, is finding out information about himself at the same time as the audience. And unlike a neo-noir film where the detective would find the information out and you'd be following him, you're kind of following the victim or the perpetrator instead. But it's the same sort of structure. But it's got nudity in it, like it's kind of... Yeah, totally. People don't really make, like, neo-noir, and especially once it tips its hat so kind of knowingly at just noirish ideas, I guess a lot of audiences over the world would really not be very aware of those films. As time goes by and the decades creep on away from the popularity of noir films, I think it's 30s or whatever, people just wouldn't be aware of even what the movies are kind of tipping their hat Two, I mean, it's sort of like Westerns. You get the occasional Western now, but people understand that historically or whatever. But I guess that's just another reason why Dark City just wouldn't get made. People would be like, especially with the reliance on international box office and stuff, like what the hell does a Spanish kid or a kid in the Philippines or a Chinese kid or an Australian kid know or care about something that's sort of homaging a very American 1930s and 40s genre? We'll keep circling back to this, I think, with other films as well. But it's just a case that you could get away with some stuff in movies these days because the template has been set where you need to dumb stuff down or make it so universal that a film like loses its sharp corners. It's sanded down to be bland. And you don't expect audiences to have to understand German expressionism or European cinematography or classic American detective stories or hardcore sci-fi to enjoy Dark City. But I think nowadays they wouldn't even trust that people would enjoy it on its own terms. So package- Which is a shame because- Totally. Because in a way, you could watch Dark City and be like, I don't really understand what these references are, but they're really cool. And maybe I'd watch that and go, like, I wonder what they are. And that would introduce you to some interesting movies. So let's jump to a quick review of The Matrix by itself before we jump to our combined review. So talk to me, The Matrix. Did you like it? What worked for you about this film? And what didn't work for you? I mean, everybody loved The Matrix, didn't they? When it came out, it was mind-blowing. I guess it's almost one of those movies, actually, that because it was so huge and so popular and so heavily referenced in pop culture and then kind of heavily homaged and wire work was in everything after it. It's one of those movies where it probably actually weirdly diminished ever so slightly. My appreciation for it maybe dipped a little bit 
in the years after I'd seen it and then picked up again. Now it's been 20 years. That sort of saturation level of all of these things. But I mean, unquestionably, when I saw it, I probably loved it. How many movies combine all of these kind of elements, kung fu and philosophy and just mix them all together and mix them together really well? All of those things sort of really come together in an in an interesting way. It feels like all of them sort of support each other. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, did I like it? Yeah, of course I did. It's The Matrix, right? It's in my top 20 of all time. What worked for me about this film? Everything and just the achievement to blend such disparate genres together and make it work so cohesively. I mean, it is insane. If someone comes to you and says, let's do a film which thematically brings in the idea of the threat of artificial intelligence blended with Eastern and I guess Western as well, philosophy and religion with Kung Fu and science fiction. Yeah, it's crazy. There's no way that should work. Like it's such an odd combination of ingredients. This should be like the worst casserole of all time. And I love the film, but I actually admire as much as I love the film, I admire they made all those elements work. Like I, for example, love Scorsese films, but I don't think the way that Goodfellas works in that it actually has to try and meld so many unrelated separate elements thematically, visually, as this film does. I mean, visually, this film takes anime and animation techniques and style and into live action, like bullet time. I mean, that's crazy. It had never been done before. I think Lost in Space had done bullet time Lost in Space, the movie, obviously not the TV series, but not with nearly the level of craft that this movie did. You mean Lost in Space, the one which had the guy from Friends and Heather Graham? Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, there's like a bullet time bit in it where it spins around, but everyone kind of looks a bit wonky. And like, frankly, audiences didn't give a shit. But that's the thing, I guess, like that little bit of craft in Lost in Space, you just don't care about because it's just not a particularly good movie or that element of craft isn't integrated into the story, whereas in The Matrix really feels like that should be there. Yeah, 100%. It does feel that in adopting other visual styles, like you look at the first scene with Trinity where it has a lot of frames that could be ripped from the panels of a comic. This shot like where she has her hands on her head and you see the cop approaching behind to slap on the handcuffs. Like There are just beautiful frames frame by frame by frame, which you'd not be surprised to see in the perfect storyboard artist's collection or in a comic. And I think Bullet Time is just the evolution of that, saying this would be the static frame in a comic, this is how it would look in cinema, which to me is a perfect example of taking influence and then adapting it to the medium. And I'm pretty sure that even though it would have appeared, as you said, to a limited degree and less well done in Lost in Space, a lot of these visual styles we see in modern movies have been experimented with in TVC and advertising and in music videos as well. So I'm sure there's a music video out there made before 1999, which has a bullet time effect. Maybe it was like a corn or prodigy music video, but this film made it work for this story and basically brought it to the mainstream, which is really cool. Although people don't really ever use it now. Well, we'll get to that. I think there's a case to be said for, like uh, the effect of speed ramping, is that some of these things become just so common, they kind of like lose their edge and they just feel a bit cheap because they've been ripped off or imitated so much. I don't think they even use it in the sequels. I think they'd use it in the scene where in Reloader, which has a lot of problems and I like a lot of parts of that film, (laughs) but overall I think it's a really weak sequel to The Matrix. It doubles down on the problems of the Matrix. There's a scene where I think 
Neo races in to rescue Morpheus, who's fighting the top of a semi-trailer. And the semi-trailer crashes. Oh, yeah. And two semi-trailers crash. And he kind of grabs them by their shirt collars like Superman. And I think the camera spins around in that particular scene. So, I think there is bullet time. But it's much grander. I think it loses its effect. Whereas when it happens in The Matrix, when he first does it leaning back, and I think we see it with Trinity as well, it's much more intimate, I think, and works more effectively in that regard because we're just seeing one character in their one moment. And it's like we're almost seeing their focus at that particular millisecond of time. Yeah, totally. Let's then jump to our combined review. And I want to talk about notable similarities like was something a coincidence or ripoff, missed opportunities, and which film has aged better. So, what do you think, Abe? Like, these films start off pretty similar in a way, like hotel room, payphone, strangers appearing to take the hero away. How much do you think these films influence each other? Yeah, I guess they don't influence each other in the way that someone saw one and thought that's a cool idea because you've got to presume that they were written and conceived. But you're right. They both sort of have a protagonist who wakes up and is shown the real world and has to become a sort of super-powered version of themselves to defeat the antagonists. Neo becomes the one and... John Murdoch is sort of taught by Kiefer Sutherland to tune better than any of the strangers. So, from that point of view, they're actually very similar. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would. In fact, they actually share a problem that's been identified in recent years that wasn't something brought to the popular consciousness 21 years ago. And that is the problem that you see in Avatar as well, which appears halfway in the timeline between these two films and now. The idea that a neophyte, a newbie, basically, usually a male, develops the same, is trained in the expertise of everyone else and then surpasses them. And I think it works in these films because, particularly The Matrix, because this person is ordained the one. So, of course, the one has to be the best. But The Matrix starts off with this kick-ass scene, literally a woman kicking ass, and we go, oh, this is Trinity, and she's a female lead, which was less common 20 years ago when The Matrix was released. We have amazing cinematography and effects like Bullet Time really amplifying her speed, her expertise to totally wipe out about like five cops in a few seconds and then escape this other sort of super type of uh, plain clothes cop, which is revealed later on to be one of the agents. And then after that, she's basically like this love interest that just sort of like, for whatever reason, which isn't quite made clear, falls in love with Neo because he's the one, but not because of his conversation or comedy. And (laughs) I think both films, you could argue, if you get on board the whole mythic journey of a hero, it's okay, but you do have to suspend a little bit of disbelief in that these people who have no experience at all can not only be trained to be as good as their teachers, but actually surpass them and be more powerful than their enemies. But to criticise that too much is to kind of start breaking things down and totally, to do that, you'd not enjoy any story involving a hero by definition because- Well, John Murdoch in Dark City is taught in a montage in the last 10 minutes absolutely everything he knows in about seven seconds by Kiefer Sutherland when it transpires that Kiefer Sutherland injects him with memories that just teach him everything. Yeah, which I didn't think is as exciting as when Neo, for example, slowly earns his skills. Oh, like- Totally. When he learns drunken boxing or whatever in the program and then gets his ass whipped 
by Lawrence Fishbourne. At least he's making mistakes and slowly acquiring his skills until the very, very end when he, spoiler alert, loses, but then actually comes back from the dead through love. And Is love what brought Jesus back? Maybe. Is that the metaphor? Yeah. Love for okay. everyone. Well, was it love that brought Neo back? I can't even remember. Well, he was dead, and then she kisses him, and he's oh, beats right. again. So, nice. I don't know. It's a bit of a day ex machina, but I guess you'd say it's love. And she has, I guess, pined for him throughout the film. And what's the name of Joe Pants? What's his name again? Joey Pants. Cypher. So, Cypher basically kind of teases her for her longing looks at Neo, the one. And so, I guess they do play that thread of love being an important aspect of the story that transcends everything at the end. But yeah, I guess you'd say the idea of these two characters, Murdoch and Neo, becoming the best of the best is just a coincidence in the sense that that's a classic hero's journey. And so I don't hold any film into account because they're similar in that regard. I mean, that's just a sort of mythic nature of storytelling. But how about missed opportunities? Like, What do you think the filmmakers could have done better with this high concept of an artificially constructed world that the heroes discover they're in, if anything? Could they have improved on anything, do you think? Wouldn't, say, The Matrix be more interesting if the artificially constructed world was some crazy visual thing or something, maybe? And look, I'm not suggesting that whatsoever because I think the decision to set it in a sort of fictionalised 1998 city is great because, in a way, it sort of doesn't date the film I mean, it obviously dates it to 1998, but that's what The Matrix is. Whereas having Dark City in this very oddly specific, very cool but mishmash of things, I don't know, maybe it starts raising a lot of questions you have about just the mechanics of that world, whereas The Matrix doesn't do that. Yeah, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's spot on there about the way that The Matrix has aged better because they consciously announce the date that the film is set. They say 98, don't they? I'm not sure, but it definitely feels like 1998. I think they say 98, but they don't try and hide the fact that it's set around the late 90s. So, to me, the film ages really well because you watch it 20 years later and if you see a mobile phone that's an old phone from back in the day, it doesn't affect the film because the point of the film is that it's set then and the Matrix could be set anywhere. So, the film, I think, is actually timeless in that regard. The only thing that can possibly date the film, from my point of view, is either the quality of visual effects or practical effects. In this case, I think the effects are fantastic, and I'm actually quite stunned how well they stand up. Like, the effects in this film, The Matrix, stand up so much better than, for example, the burly brawl with 100 Agent Smiths in Matrix Reloaded. That film looks terrible. It relied on so much CG to create an artificial Neo who looks like plasticine and an artificial Smith, that film looks terrible. Like, it's as bad as some of the action scenes in Blade 2, where it was that era where they were trying to recreate as many CG characters as possible. And those films just don't stand out now because they look like they're a bit squishy. Same with a few scenes of Spider-Man in the 2002 Spider-Man. But I guess it's that thing where, like, I guess Matrix and Dark City both used a lot of practical effects mixed with digital and miniatures as well. And it's, I suppose it's sort of similar to The Lord of the Rings. Those original three Lord of the Rings movies, to me, look so much better and more real than the following Hobbit trilogy, which, again, just relies on a huge amount of CGI and digital environments. And I think 
I guess Dark City and Matrix both came out of a time where people were still heavily using a combination of both. And I think you can really tell and it works really well. Yeah. I mean, I think the precursor to both these films, both Dark City and The Matrix, is Jurassic Park, where they've got limited CG capacity, so they have to use it creatively, then blend it with practical effects and use CG to complement practical effects. And there's this era, I think, between the mid-2000s up until as recently as a few years ago where they just threw out the baby with the bathwater and did all CG environments. And I know that watching, say, the action scene at the end of Black Panther, like to me is as cringeworthy as some of the scenes in Blade 2 and Spider-Man because the CG characters have no sense of gravity or weight. They seem to bend oddly like... A great example of where you could have done something practically and accentuated or improved upon it with CG, but they've instead relied exclusively on CG and it's for the worse. And there's this great behind-the-scenes shot of The Matrix. You know that scene where he meets his boss? He gets the phone that flips out, the 8110, and then he goes to see his boss either before or after that, and there's a window wiper wiping the outside of the window. That was actually composed of giant photographs, like a silk screen. So they took photographs of the city that are moved with Photoshop. Oh, so it's just back, like front or back projection. Yeah, well, it's not a projection. It's actually like a hanging photo. So they removed the Harbour Bridge. They moved a couple of buildings around, but otherwise it's pretty much a landscape photo of Sydney, CBD, and they just basically hung that behind the glass windows where that boss is. And it's all the better for it. I was stunned by that, actually, because I actually assumed that they had either filmed it on location or added the glass in afterwards in some ways. But there's no question that when I see that scene, I don't think that they're not in that building. Whereas I think nowadays they would actually use CD to create that, which would seem more expensive to me than actually just printing out giant photographs. I was watching a Netflix series and it was like a comedy and they'd obviously shot whole scenes in front of green screens that then they just keyed in the cemetery that the scene was set in or something. And it's just like, oh, fuck, so you really rue the day when you miss people actually bothering to go out on location and shoot the bloody thing there. It's like, come on, guys. We're probably about five years out from just absolutely every single scene in everything just being shot in a studio in front of a green screen with that sort of like very artificial looking key light look that movies have now and just banging in whatever backgrounds you like. And it's really boring. Yeah, it's like the better or worse impact of Avatar, I think. This idea of let's all sit down on blue boxes and sit behind blue tables and that sort of thing. And I think this really became a big deal with that film Sky Captain and The World of Tomorrow, where that entire film was way ahead of its curve, for better or worse, by having these people like Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelina Jolie and Jude Law doing exactly this, like Avatar, just sitting on green or blue boxes and the entire ground was recreated. But note that film, it was so stylized and trying to ape the 1940s color palette and lack of resolution that it probably worked better than, say, a high-resolution 4K film now. If you want to see a really good compromise, check out the behind-the-scenes of Oblivion because that director's name escapes me. Is an incredible. Yeah, incredible visualist and actually lectures in architecture now to this day between movies. And there's scenes set in this like floating kind of 360-degree glass wall dome on a pillar where Tom Cruise lives. 
And they actually went around the world and shot scenes at sunrise, sunset, etc., and then project it, not with a projector, but I think actually playing like giant LCD screens behind the glass so that the sunset, for example, light would then light him practically inside the lounge room. That's cool. So it's similar to the Matrix, but rather than being a static image, they actually rely on the sunset scenes they filmed to light him identically as sunset. Yeah, right. Which to me is a really good compromise where you get the same lighting and so on as you get the time, the same believability of the image. But if you want to have the convenience of shooting on a set, you can do that as well. Yeah, that's cool. So the only other thing I'd say at missed opportunities before we move on and talk about the critical and box office score of these films, I would say is for me – Conceptually, I think The Matrix takes more advantage of this idea of discovering you're in an artificially created world. And I think it holds up in terms of logic. Like with The Matrix, it is basically just our world. I mean, this was the philosophical question everyone had after watching it. Like, are we in The Matrix? Like, it's a round world. You walk around. And I think the only clues there are that something is amiss is the way they describe deja vu being a digital glitch. So that was a really cool thing, right? Because we've all experienced deja vu. And when he has that moment and he just sort of writes it off as being, oh, I just saw the same cat twice, everyone freaks out because it means the rules of the Matrix are being rewritten and something's going to happen. And other than that, though, there's no way you'd be aware that you're in an artificially constructed world. So from a storytelling point of view, it holds up logically. Whereas Dark City... At the end, you see this floating rock in space, like it's been cuffed out with a kid's toy from planet Earth. It has like soil underneath and a very clear surrounding. And they kind of try and explain that people can't find their way out of it. And when they try and think about how to drive out of the city to Shell Harbor, which is meant to be like a coastal retreat that people talk about going to, they never can quite recall how to get there. And That's kind of cool that they set that up and explain it, but I think in Dark City, you're more likely to work out you're an artificially constructed world than you are in The Matrix. You mean you just got to drive from one end of the city to the other and realise that the city's actually only four blocks long? Yeah, totally. Or, in fact, this whole idea of the tuning that happens at midnight every night when basically everyone just sort of falls asleep, they sort of show it in this kind of cool montage sequence of cars slowing down and- people just falling asleep at the counter of a hotel or something like that. And then when they're asleep, there's a really cool practical and visual effect where, for example, a working-class couple at a small perky table suddenly are redressed into fancy clothes, the table stretched out, the furnishings change, and suddenly overnight they become aristocratic or more affluent characters. That's all cool. It looks cool, right? And this is all the way that these weird bald characters These aliens are trying to test and play with humans to discover their soul. Okay, cool. But just practically, like if you're falling asleep whilst welding or using an an axe or eating a really hot soup and you fall forward. Oh, a really hot soup. (laughs) You're going to get burned and drowned. Exactly. Like it's just a bit silly. Like I think it falls apart if you think a little bit about it. Like using a welder, like you fall forward and cut your head off. I know it's a science fiction film. And I know you have to suspend belief to a degree. But I always think with a great science fiction film, 
the science is as strong as the fiction. And I think a lot of the science of it falls apart. It's more fable to me, whereas The Matrix intellectually stands up. To me, there are less plot holes, less logic leaps to make with The Matrix than Dark City. So, for that regard, I think as much as I enjoy both films, I think The Matrix takes advantage more believably of the idea that we don't know that we're in a constructed world. Whereas Dark City, it just feels what it looks like when they pull back the camera to being basically an elaborate Monopoly board. What do you think? Like you wonder how the physics of a, just a disc floating. Oh, I can even get my head around that. Like, you know. I think it even makes the sun rise. You're how right. How does that it's work? true. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a kind of cool visual image like this town's been dug out of the ground and so you have like soil beneath the city like an iceberg and that's kind of cool. I mean, we've seen floating artificial worlds like an Alien 3. We've seen the Death Star and Star Wars. Yeah, sure, fine. I can buy that to a degree that they can make this work in relation to gravity and even a stretch sunrise. It works in The Truman Show, right? So that's a good analogy. Like The Truman Show, for example. But The Truman Show is just a big dome. Over yeah, the and the same problem remains there. Like how do you keep the hero in? without the hero realising where they are. And up until now- Through hilarious montages? That's right. Well, they kind of like try and still fears into him, like fear of the water, fear of drowning. They use emotional anchors like to try and keep him in the town. They try and massage his ambitions so that rather than travel to Fiji, he wants to stay working in the office. Should we have talked about the Truman Show as well as like a, another tranche of this? Because that's really about a guy waking up and realising the world he lives in is not real. Yeah. Actually, why don't we hit that right now? Like we've just been talking about missed opportunities. What films come to mind to you besides Dark City, The Matrix, that share this idea of a hero waking up and realising where they actually are? There's The Truman Show. That's a great one. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's more of a reach, that one. That's probably just loosely, thematically similar if you sort of draw that comparison. Much more similar, I suppose, is The 13th Floor, which I think was released in 1999. And that's much less well known or or respected than Dark City and The Matrix, but very similar. Yeah. That film by Joseph Rosnack, released in 99. I only saw it recently on your suggestion because I recall the time critics saying, ah, it's just another version of The Matrix. And it came out- It's weirdly a kind of combination of Dark City and The Matrix because their alternate world is 1937. So, it's got that kind of Dark City thing, but it's much more high tech in that it's computer science creating a virtual reality simulation. So, it's kind of this squishy, squashy version of the two. Yeah, totally. I mean, that film came out- about a month after The Matrix, which is so unlucky. At <laughs> least Dark City had a one-year runway and was the first film to be able to say, look, we were here first. And they weren't as successful, but by God, they were more successful, Dark City, than The 13th Floor. Like that film basically was just buried at the box office. And I only saw it recently in your suggestion based on the similarities, but I had avoided it in the past because critics – reviewers, online bloggers had said, it's just a cheap imitation of The Matrix, which I don't think is fair. I think it's a really simplistic criticism to make of The 13th Floor. And also, it's based on a book as well anyway. So, it wasn't like it was had time to try and ride the coattails of the success of The Matrix. It's just bad timing. But I agree with you. Like That's a bit messy in the sense that it's similar but different as to what it does better or yeah. worse, having recently seen it. It does that similar thing where it's a world in a digital dome of sorts in the same way that Murdoch, Rufus Sewell's character from Dark City, finds himself getting to the edge of the dome-like town. 
that they live in. We have a similar, two similar scenes actually in 13th Floor, spoilers, where they go to the edge of this constructed world and actually see like almost pre-90s, like a classic 1980s green graphic mesh structure where essentially their world ends. And that was really cool, I thought. I really liked that. If you're going to show the edge of their world, I thought it was a great way of showing that. Like rather than just being blackness and just ending, it just sort of like kind of slowly turns into like classic computer imagery. That was cool. They do almost the exact same thing as Duck City where characters are like, have you ever driven out of town? How do you get out of town? And then they realise that you can't get out of town. Yeah, some of those lines were almost identical, weren't they? I suppose, though, I mean, ultimately, look, is there a reason that people don't talk about the 13th floor in the same sentence or hold in the same regard as Dark City and The Matrix? Well, I've got a controversial thought on this, and it's a criticism of The Matrix and something the 13th floor does better. So here's an issue. Rusnak, I think is about all is. <laughs> so about three weeks after Matrix, maybe even less than that, the Columbine shooting happened, and the guy dressed in the same sort of black trench coat. At the time, it was much like that whole hoo ha that happens every time there's unfortunately a massacre, usually a school shooting, where conservatives generally blame computer games, and that's been happening for like twenty, thirty years. Right. Let's blame violent movies and or computer games particularly first-person shoot-em-up games. So that was an unfortunate stain on the release and legacy of The Matrix because these perpetrators had co-opted that particular visual style, that dress. But something which isn't really touched upon in The Matrix is this is a film where lots of innocent people, I say, I guess, people inverted commas because it's an artificially constructed world. However, there are people, real human beings in pods And if they die in the Matrix, they die in their pod in the real world. And they're just indiscriminately mowed down. There's a scene where they, you know, that classic scene, they go to the fort. Oh, and gun down all the security guards. Yeah, those security guards and the SWAT team that runs in, they're not Agent Smiths. They are real people and their consciousness is in a SWAT uniform and their real body is in a little pod. Yeah, we presume they've lived 30-something years of life. And have children. what they presume are real experiences. Yes. And the film doesn't touch on that at all. I think they very briefly say that they're part of the Matrix and therefore they're bad. That's kind of like the way I think that Lawrence Fishburne pushes past that moral question, which is briefly asked. But the focus very much is on don't get killed yourself. But by knowing that if you die in the Matrix, you die in real life, obviously you can use a bit of empathy to apply that to every other character in the Matrix. So, I think that if this film was released in 2019, this would be a bigger issue. And the third floor, to its credit, and spoilers for this film, actually treats those artificially created characters with a lot more sympathy in that these characters could just easily die. Like when you discover Craig Bierko, the lead character who plays a character called Douglas or John or David, because he plays like three characters essentially. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When he discovers, you know, that he's artificially constructed, You've already set him up to be the hero of the story, so the audience is already sympathetic to him. And the film itself is so sympathetic to his existence that – what's the name of that female – Gretchen Moll's character? Natasha. Yeah, depending if she's playing Jane or Natasha. She's so empathetic to him that she's fallen in love with him even though she knows he's fake. And then at the end, or just before he becomes a real person essentially, she essentially – says a nicer man that he is is better than the real husband she has in the outside world. 
So to me, it's just a much more nuanced, empathetic portrayal of artificially created characters, whereas The Matrix is much more about the artificial world and that's it. So I actually really appreciate that. Yeah. I guess as well for a movie with so many big philosophical questions about what it is to be human, what is the self and so on, you're right. They do really just gloss over that, don't they? Like, totally. What totally. are the other experiences of these people? Negligible. Like Craig Burko's character basically says, well, what's the point? And at the end, he's just fearless. Like he doesn't mind being shot because he's like, well, this is real. I don't exist. So if I die, big deal. That's that scene when he's kind of like verbally tussling with – um. Vincent D'Onofrio's character called um, Jason and Jerry. And that's pretty cool because if you know there aren't any stakes, if suddenly you could die at any time, you're kind of fearless, right? And so that then influences what his character does afterwards. And that's really cool. And then at the end, when he becomes a real character, he's much more vulnerable and certain like a newborn baby in the final scene when he kind of joins Gretchen Moll's character in the real world. So I think it's arguable that this film has dated better in that regard as we've become more empathetic and aware of artificial intelligence. I think that actually helps the legacy of The 13th Floor. Totally. Is there any other movies maybe from the time that might uh, inform our discussion here, perhaps? I think we have to say definitely Existenza, right? Oh, yeah. That was around the same time. Cronenberg, love it. Yeah, I mean, would you agree? That's yeah. I mean, again, that's a the movie same about thing. an artificial reality and people sort of waking up from it's a game they're playing. The game Existence. So yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely an overlap, and especially with the uh, bioports, which um, Cronenberg really makes the most out of. Yeah, totally. Like the ones in the Matrix are quite mechanical. There's a sort of harshness to the way that they're soldered onto the body when the bodies are in those kind of robotic embryos, which they have to pull out of Neo's character. And then they're the ones that are permanently, the jacks that are permanently kind of stuck in their necks. What I think is really cool about Existence is that it doesn't have that steampunk influence. There's no metal in sight. Like the bioports are kind of like soft and bubbly, uh, yeah. fleshy. Like it's real Cronenberg-y, that sort of body horror video. Oh, mess. People always like, licking their fingers and sticking them in people's bioports and stuff. It was a yeah, weird yeah. sexual thing to it all. Totally. I mean, they look more like umbilical cords than yeah, they do yeah. wires or cables. So Even I the actually, guns are that kind of weird organic bone guns and stuff, which fire yeah, yeah. Like fish, like made out of fish bones. It's great. To me, Existence is an all-time classic that's up there with The Matrix. And it, I yeah, like man. it because it's not as similar to The Matrix. Like I like the fact that it is much more organic, like the guns constructed out of chicken bits and the ball's teeth. I love the part that those bioports are kind of fleshy and the actual device, the computer game, is like basically like a placenta, isn't it? Like that's just cool. And the film has this awesome homey vibe, like they're in a small town, soft lighting, lots of wood textures. Like it's very much the best version of doing a low-budget indie film where you kind of choose an everyday location now and the concepts- yeah, that's right. Totally. And it, the concepts are beyond this world, but they're concepts that are applied in this world. And The Matrix yeah. is similar in that regard, but with a bigger budget, they just have the capacity to have huge helicopter crashes and amazing kung fu fights. And I think The Existence is the best way of doing the lo-fi version of some of the themes of The Matrix. And I must say, there's one thing I love about Existence that changed the way I thought about human infection. What? You know that <laughs> okay. bit where they put the ports in 
And when he, they put the ports in, I'm not sure it was just me in the audience. I saw this again in that three-year window of lots of free movies. This was in 98. But there's this bit where Jude Law kind of expresses the concerns of the audience where he kind of asks, well, if you get like that jack put in, what's stopping like a major infection and sticking things into it? And there's a great bit where what's her name? Female lead. Oh, Jennifer Jason Jennifer Jason Lee. Lee, who can just be so expressive with her face, with that dialogue. She opens her tongue and makes the point that humans have holes all over them. <laughs> and that's such a cool point because once she does that, she doesn't actually suggest any, any other holes besides the mouth. But by just saying, you already have a hole that's open to the world. It's your mouth. <laughs> There's no need to freak out about this one. Uh, I think that's really clever because- Cronenberg. You do think of like, if you had like something put into your body like that, it would get all pussy and a bit of infection. But of course, we do it all the time. And we also do it with like a costume bag as well and other sort of ways that we've hacked the body to artificially create jacks or funnels of sorts that don't get infected, just become part of the body's process. And that's just a great way, I think, of taking his body horror bit, but making it, that's grounded in the science of the fiction. So, that's cool. Yeah, totally. All right. I think it's time we get to the box office champ review. What do you say? Yeah, I think it's a pretty foregone conclusion who's about to win this, but let's go. All right. So, no surprises here. Dark City made $14 million. Budget isn't disclosed and another $12 million in foreign, so $27 million overall. I would have thought this film would have cost at least 20 to make. What do you think? Google says 27 million US dollars. Budget or grosses? Budget. In that case, it's basically made exactly what it costs to make. And the rule of thumb for movies, Hollywood accounting or realistic accounting, is basically a movie has to make three times its budget before it sees a profit. So basically, a $27 million movie has to make approximately 90 million ish before seeing a dollar. Fair to say, Dark City was not a box office champ. Although you never can find out how much money any of these things made on DVD or VHS or cable sales and stuff. You only have like box office mojo or whatever really just seem to report the box office. And maybe Dark City made quite a lot of money later in DVD. Yeah, you're totally right there because we talked earlier about these films both being at that kind of pinnacle of actually the start of the DVD surge. And these films are both cult classics. So they both would have made quite a lot of money in uh, home video. However, I would say that Matrix would have actually made more money oh, yeah. in the long tail than Dark City, even with that under consideration. In fact, when we compare the box office of The Matrix, I think it almost double that for DVD, Blu-ray, cable sales. So, let's jump to that. Box Office Mojo tells us that The Matrix cost $63 million, which by the looks of it, 20 years later, I think is actually a really good value. Wow, man, it's great. I mean, all the money's on screen. It had a few stars in it, or namely at the time, and still, I suppose, Keanu Reeves. But given the effects and how this film looks, it looks like it's worth much more than that. Yeah, so, I mean, it would be about like, what is that? Using my inflation calculator? I don't have one of those. I'm just sort of about 100 million bucks. Considering that movies cost like $250 million these days and look, have marginally bigger scope. I mean, I guess The Matrix doesn't have giant robot transformers in it or something, but pretty good value. Totally. I mean, Black Panther cost around $200 million-ish. Endgame, Avengers Endgame cost three, $356. So, yeah. Wow. That money's on screen. Domestic gross for Matrix is $171.5 million. Foreign is $292 million for a grand total of $463 million. So, applying that rule of thumb, with a production budget of about $63 million, the film basically had to make about 190 ish and it cleared that by a long way. But really, as we're talking about, 
would have made a fortune in DVD sales and cable. And I think also then set the table for the box office for Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, which basically doubled that. And then they made a bunch of movie tie-ins and I've got like the Art of the Matrix books and I'm sure, look, you know, it's a, a storyboard book or whatever, but I think there would be a whole bunch of kind of other, what do they call them, ancillaries or whatever, just would have been money makers on this. Yeah, I've got really bad news for you about that book you have. What's that? I'm really embarrassed to say this, but about a month ago, I was cleaning out my study and I discovered that I have that book. <laughs> you have that book yeah. and I have that book or you have my copy of that the book? The latter. I've got your book. Oh, right. Okay. Well- Give that back. I actually think I've had that book for about, I reckon, possibly seven years, which means- Maybe longer, maybe a decade. I don't know. Possibly. Anyway, it goes to show how often I bust out the art of the Matrix. All right. Over next beer, I'll exchange you the book. Thanks. Good. (laughs) And you can give me a punch back. All right. Thank you. So, let's jump to Rotten Tomato scores. Which films do you think did better, before I let you know? Which film do you think did better with fans and better with critics compared to each other? Like if I had to guess? Yeah. I reckon they'd both be pretty favourably reviewed. And you'd be right. But I'm going to go about equal. I'm going to say about equal. So, Dark City has a 75% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and 84% audience. So, that's 75 and 84 compared to The Matrix, which is 88% with critics. So, a bit better. Not a lot better, but a bit better. And 85% with audiences. This is what surprises me. This really surprises me. The Matrix has 85% with audiences and Dark City is only 1% less on 84. That surprised me a lot, actually. I thought that Dark City would be too esoteric, too slow for modern audiences, but perhaps the key is in the audience score numbers. So, 153,000 people led to that score for Dark City, but with The Matrix, 33 million. (laughs) Wow. But I think Roger Ebert said Dark City was his favourite film of 1998. Really? He was a critic with a bit of sway. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's a huge vote of confidence. I mean, that's three thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Counts for something. Now, let's jump to our awards. This is the Ben and Gabe version of the Oscars. Let's start with the Best Dialogue Award, which in the future we need to give actually a name to. But for now, it's the Best Dialogue Award. <laughs> okay, What's great. your favourite quote of Dark City? For something that's about imaginative dialogue, it's got a cracker of a name, doesn't it? Okay. Great dialogue from Dark City. No more, Mr. Book. No, no more, Mr. Hand. No, wait. Is it Mr. Sleep? Whichever one dies first. I mean, it doesn't really have hugely memorable dialogue. It's not like a quotable film. People aren't rolling around throwing out uh, lines from Dark City. Not at all. It's incredibly well, nicely written and stuff, but certainly there's not those lines you know what funny, what's funny about it, and this perhaps, I guess, is one of those subconscious ways of picking flaws in the film, is that you're right, there aren't any obvious lines of dialogue that jump to mind, but to me, that's probably an indication that the film isn't as rewatchable, isn't as memorable, wasn't as impactful on our subconscious as The Matrix, because the film actually is written in that style of being that kind of gumshoe, neo-noir detective film, and those types of films often do have very quotable lines, like, if anything, those films often suffer from actually sounding too stagey. Yeah, because they don't need to do realism, right? They can Totally. So, you can actually have like quite verbose, witty, punny lines and that's totally fine because you buy it being that genre. But this film actually doesn't have that at all. And I'd actually say that's a flaw of Dark City in that I can't think of any notable lines. The only one that jumped out to me is sleep now. Oh, yeah. Which Mr. Hand says. Sleep now. But I wouldn't call that a quotable line as such. I mean, it's delivered really well. It's kind of confusing as to what he's doing. So, you do pay extra attention to it. But I would actually say 
the line itself is iconic in any way. So let's jump to The Matrix, which is very quotable. What's your favourite line from The Matrix? I'm going to go with, there is Dave Spoon for that little Australian kid. Does he have an Australian accent in the film? I can't recall. I think he does. Yeah, he's quite terrible. I mean, he's given it a red-hot go. Yeah, I actually think that's quite He probably has no idea what he's talking about, but There Is No Spoon was pretty kind of indelible at the time. Yeah, totally. It is funny, though, that one of the most quotable lines of that film is not by the three or four main characters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, I guess it, it speaks to the sort of the way that it's philosophical bent permeated culture. Everyone was like, oh, maybe we are living in a matrix. There is yeah, no totally. spoon. Hoy, hoy, hoy. I've got a few quotable lines. I mean, the film's very quotable. And I think a lot of credit must be given to the actors who deliver those lines because, as they say with Star Wars, it's one thing to have dialogue. If an actor can't sell that dialogue, it just falls apart. For me, it's that line which is Neo saying, what are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? That, by the way, that's my Californian-American accent. That's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. And Morpheus says, no, Neo, I'm trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. And that's great because to me it sets a table as to what's to come. Like That's a pretty dramatic thing to say that somehow he'll be able to dodge bullets. And then they totally pay off on that with that bullet time sequence on the rooftop against one of the agents. So. That's is that, is that the scene where Trinity says, dodge this, and shoots an agent in the head point yeah, blank? Yeah, totally. The other one which nice. is, I, I quite like is when Morpheus is standing on one building, this is during a training simulation, and Neo's dressed in like a kind of white T-shirt or something like that and a open neck jacket. It's very casual, but they're on a rooftop. And then Morpheus goes, you have to let it go, Neo. Fear, doubt, and disbelief. Free your mind. And then jumps across and just sails right. forever. It's obviously not why it works. Why was the specificity CG. of what Neo was wearing important to that? Because he's not actually in the Matrix. He's very casually dressed, but Morpheus is like dressed in the full garb. So for some oh, reason, they kind of like made Neo disempowered in like casual IT hacker wear. <laughs> right. But okay. Morpheus is like full on jacket, the glasses, you know, like he looks the part and as he sails across, he has like the trench coat sort of fluttering behind him like a cape, which is a bit of a yeah, right. visual prelude to the whole Superman-esque flying sequence at the end. Look, there are heaps of the lines, Neo, why do my eyes hurt? Morpheus, you've never used them before. Well, that's a great line. Like, it sets up straight away the complexity of the situation. Like, oh, right, so these guys have basically been essentially in utero, in a machine in utero their entire time. That then sets the table, to use that expression again, for all those acupuncture needles you see as they try and kind of get his body up to speed because his muscles would have- Yeah, like he's never walked. Totally. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's a baby. Yeah. The other line I love is where Tank says, so what do you need besides a miracle? And it's that classic line by Neo where it's guns, lots of guns. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that definitely inspired those school Yeah. <laughs> and that visual, though, of all the guns just suddenly fluttering past, like a deck of cards. Yeah, that's cool. What about the classic, whoa? I reckon whoa would probably be one of the most famous lines in this film. What line do you think is parodied the most? I know we've talked about how certain effects like bullet time have been parodied, but what particular line do you think has been popped up in like Robot Chicken and The Simpsons and that sort of thing? Probably that or some sort of welcome to the real world. Oh, yeah, I'd have welcome to go to and yeah, rewatch that's it, uh, totally. I'd have to go and rewatch one of those. Didn't one of those sca- like those terrible scary movies like Parody Matrix in like the uh, yeah, early 2000s? Yeah. That's like a subgenre yeah, of its own, the parody film from the early 2000s. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, let's jump to the winner-winner chicken dinner award. So who came out on top in each of these movies, as in lead actor, supporting actor, director, producer, et cetera? Like, was this their career high? Well, I mean, in The Matrix, I think everyone came out of this pretty well, probably except for the bloke who got dropped from the sequel. Joey Pants? 
No, he dies. He spoiler. It was a tank or APOC. Oh yeah, one of those, those guys. guys. One of the surviving crew tank. members. Tank who's like shot yeah, in the okay, stomach so- or in the back and gets up and like does that day ex machina at the end of the film. That's tank. Right, yeah. right. But then the other guy was sort of replaced in the with sequel. the guy from Lost with the long uh, dreads. Yeah, yeah. Harold. He's a great actor, but it was a shame anyway. to lose tank. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the circumstances around Tank not appearing, but apart from him, didn't everyone basically had a huge bump from this? Canoe, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, Hugo Weaving. I mean, Hugo, I Weaving Hugo Weaving sort of appeared in everything, right? I think he and Carrie Ann Moss came ahead as being their career high. Oh, career high is harsh, but they came from zero to hero compared to, say, Keanu Reeves and Fishbourne. I mean, Fishbourne was in Apocalypse Now when he was 17. So that guy was punching above his weight, above his age early on. Whereas, wait, Lawrence and Larry Fishburne are the same person? Yeah, whoa, did you not know that. <laughs> yeah, of course I knew that. Come on, whoa. I just wanted to say, whoa, that's more mind blowing. Yeah, so I'd say Hugo Weaving and maybe Carrie Ann Moss. Was it their career high though? Do you think that Carrie Ann Moss or Hugo Weaving had a better performance or a bigger film after that? I would say Hugo Weaving maybe, but I'd say Carrie Ann Moss no. I don't know. I mean, Hugo Weaving's probably been in more of the largest grossing movies of all time, you know, like the Lord of the Rings movies, the voice of Megatron in the Transformers uh, movies. Captain America, First Avenger, like one of the first uh, Marvel films. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'd say the Wachowskis. I mean, I think this is their best film. So you could say it was their career high. I mean, it was only their second film and they've made a lot of good yeah, films. Yeah, I mean, since. for Lily and Lana, for sure. I guess, though, they still, off the back of this, they got the Matrix sequels and I mean, I'm very partial to Cloud Atlas. I like Cloud Atlas a lot. Would you say, though, that's a career high above The Matrix? I mean, like, no one's going around quoting lines from yeah, Cloud okay. Atlas and the same sort of cultural zeitgeisty. I'd say also Joey Pants. Right? Joey Pants. <laughs> Joey Pants. Yeah, like, I, I think you know, this is probably – yeah, I mean, he's been, he was in films in memorable yelly roles in Bad Boys 1 and 2, but I think this is probably his career high. I mean, he's a, delivers a fantastic performance. I don't know. He's yeah, been of in all, a lot of movies. Yeah, but all these, but of all like these run. films, this one I think has probably done more for his career and he's most recognisable for than any other film. Which isn't saying take anything away from those films. It's just saying it's just comparative. He was in The Sopranos. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's up there with the career high. Okay, that's fairly famous. Well yeah, that's true. Okay. Television series. Let's jump to the Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee Jones in a supporting role in The Fugitive. He blew Harrison Ford off the screen. By the way, if I didn't finish that sentence, it sounds bad. <laughs> he, blew, right. okay. he blew Harrison yep. Ford right. off the screen and was rewarded with an Oscar. So who stole the show against all odds in these twin movies because their role was so small, but their role was, and perhaps their role was underwritten, but they rose above it. Who do you think kind of really came out of the gate of, you know, from behind the pack and basically delivered above and beyond what was on the page to garner attention and elevate their role. I would say Tank. Tank, yep. I'm going to go for a sort of subcategory of this and just make it a can of ham award because I think Kiefer Sutherland, he goes all the way in Dark City and it's, sort of, it's a lot of big choices he makes. I like that. I respected that. All right. It's not for everybody, but ouch, not a fan. Yeah, I actually think this is a career low for him in Dark City. So... Yeah, I don't know what's up with that performance at all. It's bizarre. To me, he's a man who's probably like late 20s, early 30s when that film was done. He's playing a character that I think should probably be around 50s. And I can't help but think the film was perhaps financed on the basis of having a few recognisable names, him being the main one in that film, because he's probably the most famous person in the entire film besides John Hurt. 
And I just don't know. William Hurt, sorry. I don't know what he's doing. I just think the stuttering and stammering is so contrived, so over the top. I would actually go as far to say, for him, I think it's possibly career low. Now, you say you admire his choice. (laughs) I always also admire actors that make a bold call. Some would say that to take a film or review coming up, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. What's his name? He plays the bald guy. Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I'm blank after blank. Yeah, no, not Mark Zuckerberg. Jesse Eisenberg, he makes bold choices in that film and they don't pay off. And I feel the same thing about Sutherland's role here. But I guess in the mid-90s, Kiefer was sort of, he wasn't wielding the leading man power he had in the sort of late 80s. No, that's right, but that's not an excuse for the choices he made. <laughs> no, but like maybe it's a reason he swung for the fences. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that basically the role's written for a 50-year-old and he yeah, basically is acting up right. to that rather than perhaps tailoring the performance to the character, not to the age. Fair. Well, then in that case, I think Richard O'Brien as Mr. Hand, the lead stranger, is fantastic. I agree. He is brilliant. Bruce Spence is always oh, yeah. fantastic as a character actor, but I agree with you that that particular guy you mentioned does a great job. I mean, those characters are kind of odd. They're basically old men-looking aliens, and it's hard to infuse them with character because their personalities are very unemotional. But he's fantastic. He's got so much presence on screens. He's brilliant. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. All right, let's jump to the Edward Furlong Award. This award's named after Edward Furlong, who probably didn't do the most to take advantage of the opportunity given to him with Terminator 2. So, Bullshit. did this film- so unfair, this award. Edward Furlong <laughs> is a gem. We can consider renaming this award down the Yeah, track. I'm going to think of some alternates, you know. Not everyone got to be in Pet Cemetery 2, all right? A bonafide classic, okay? So, let's- Did this film ruin the career of anyone, or who didn't make the most of the opportunity after this film? So, first of all, Dark City. He's popped up in stuff we've talked about before. Rufus Sewell- kind of was one of those guys who sort of sat on the edge of becoming a leading man and just never kind of tipped over. Yeah, you're right. He didn't have an agent like some of the other agents out there who try and force stars through. He, unfortunately, just didn't get ahead. Maybe I'm not sure if it was the choices he made or the films he was in. It was bad luck. But I actually think he does have a bit of personality and charisma on screen, but he's never really kicked on. I mean, actors like, who's his contemporary? Eccleston, of the same generation, a British actor in the same league, probably competing for similar roles. He did films where he kind of like dialed up the, the performance to 10, like in Gone in 60 Seconds, and managed to also pilot that into other opportunities like Doctor Who on TV. So I agree. I guess Rufus Sewell's in Man in High Castle, and he was great as the bad guy in that A Knight's Tale and stuff. But I guess it's just that he never went on to be kind of like the lead role in a bunch of films. Yeah, totally. You're right. I mean, he's had a lot of successful films afterwards, but he's never actually like really become the it British actor compared to other actors who had similar opportunities. Totally. And what about in The Matrix? That's a tough one. I mean, I think that this is a great example of everyone making the most of the opportunity. I've always felt sorry for a particular actor who I think I thought of before when trying to choose my favourite line. It's the actor with the blonde hair, the Australian Melinda McGlory. Oh, Belinda McClory? Yeah. She gives a great line, which is, no, when she's about to be killed. (laughs) And the way she delivers a monosyllabic one-word response is actually so emotional. I think she says her exact phrase is, not like this. Oh, yeah. Wherever she's on screen, she's brilliant. And apparently, I'll get to her in relation to a bit of trivia, but she actually apparently was originally meant to be a transgender character. 
and then just both Hollywood trying to sort of make it a more mainstream film that's lost. But you can see the way that she is styled, her haircut and dress. Yeah, that right. The directors tried to retain elements of that character's original origins. So I'm always disappointed that she didn't kick on. I mean, maybe she didn't have, wasn't at the right age or she wanted to stay in Australia, but I've always wanted her to go further. I also feel that Matt Doran, who played Mouse, this could be an opportunity oh, yeah. for him to perhaps go to LA and get a break. And is that also very memorably, the uh, isn't he the Death Sticks dealer in uh, Star Wars Attack of the Clones? Is he? He's got a great name like uh, Sleaze Bagarino. Or right. Something. So that's two massive Hollywood films in the same sort of one, two-year period. I mean, he's only in one scene in Star Wars 2, but it's a very memorable scene. Maybe it's the best scene, probably. Yeah. We talked earlier about who made the most of their opportunity. I would say Robert Taylor did as well from The Matrix. Oh, yeah. He played Agent Jones, one of the two agents behind, standing, you know, literally behind Agent Smith a lot of the time. And he's kicked off with a great career doing a combination of lead roles in Australian films. And then was it Longmire? Yeah, one of those shows that your parents probably- Yeah, it kind of got relegated to being the less well-known version of Justified. It just reminds me of Walker, Texas Ranger, but I'm sure it's better than yeah, that. That's true. All right. Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big League Award, named after American actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck, who seized the opportunity to jump from indie films, Sling Blade and Goodwill Hunting, respectively, to launch a Hollywood career with Armageddon. So, Gabe, who jumped into the big league with Dark City and The Matrix? I mean, did anyone really change all that much in any of these? Yeah, I mean, I can't think of who – well, Carrie Moss – came from almost nowhere beforehand. This award's basically named for the person who jumped into this film from nowhere. And to me, they'd be Carrie Ann Moss, Mouse, Matt Matt Doran, and probably Belinda McClory. They came from nowhere. I mean, they weren't doing indie films. She was in a- Yeah, they're not like beloved- Yeah, we're not talking like a Steve Buscemi type or Francis McDormand or anyone like that. Yeah, right. But in this particular case, I guess you'd say in Dark City, Rufus Sewell, Melissa George, who was a TV soap actress- before that, she was in a very kind of soft, early evening Australian family soap and then was sort of semi-naked in Dark City and kind of pursuing more adult material on an international level. So, for her, it's arguable that she kind of made the jump. But there weren't any Sundance darlings who appeared in these films and then kind of this was a slingshot for their career, is there? No. I mean, Keanu had done he had done a bunch of sort of independent movies before this, River's Edge and My Private Idaho. But, I mean, he'd also been doing Bill Point Ted break. and Parenthood. Yeah, yeah. Speed, exactly. So it's not really like – I guess he was sort of straddling between those kind of indies and big mainstream ones, but it's not like he appeared out of the last time he committed suicide was the only movie he'd done before this and then, boom, he's in The Matrix. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, let's jump to the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy Award named after the iconic supporting actor Stephen Tobolowsky, who has appeared in over 260 films and TV shows. Many know him as the insurance salesman Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which actor triggered, hey, it's that guy, when he or she appeared on screen? I mean, it's got to be Joe Pantoliano, right? Yeah, like, totally. He's always, you know, he's like, he's criminals or he's cops or he's just a guy that you've seen in a thing, sometimes with better hair than other times. But it, for me, it's him. Yeah, I agree. All right, done. Let's jump to the Memphis Reigns Award, named after the absurdly named character played by Nicolas Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. It is a terrible name, Memphis Reigns. Brilliant. Listeners, look that up on IMDb. I kid you not, that is actually the name, and they reference him by his entire name in the film. Gabe, 
Which actor steals the cake for the most ludicrous name in either of these films? And being both sci-fi films, there's plenty to choose from. Well, I mean, I guess The Matrix does a pretty good job of everyone having what could otherwise be pretty stupid names and you just go with it, like Neo and Morpheus and Trinity and Cypher and Tank and APOC and Mouse and Switch and Dozer. Yeah. We're totally. not that far off from, you know, them being called Q-Ball, 8-Ball, Zero-Ball. Or the Seven ball. Dwarves names of Happy, Sad, Cranky. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Dozer's so- the big cunning guy like a bulldozer. Switch, I mentioned before, perhaps the ambiguous gender origins of that character. Mouse is a small kind of diminutive character. I guess Tank is kind of playing against type because he's a little lean character. But yeah, they're all kind of crazy. I mean, the Oracle speaks for itself. Agent Smith, you know, generic name for a copyable antagonist. I don't know. I think Morpheus is pretty ludicrous. You go with it in the film, but it's a stretch when you first hear it. But I think you just buy into it straight away. I guess they they do sound kind of cool, don't they? Morpheus. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's cool. So, what would be your worst name of any of those? The worst one's probably Dark City, where there's a cop called Bumstead. William Hurt's character is called Inspector Frank Bumstead. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's meant to, I guess, echo those classic origins of the genre. But it does jump out, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, Bumstead. Where is it? Like, I guess that's noirish in a way or something. But I don't know. Every time you hear it, it's just Bumstead. It's a bit stupid, really, isn't it? I agree. All right, let's go to the Die Hard and the Building Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero who's up against a group of baddies in a single location. So, if imitation is the ultimate form of flattery, did either of these films leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? Oh, Jesus. We might have mentioned it before, but didn't every single TV show after The Matrix start doing wire work? Yeah, it was wire work. I don't think anyone kind of imitated the genre of the artificial constructed world, but they imitated, I think, the production values and techniques, cinematography of The Matrix. Yeah. I think just episodes of Buffy, people would start doing big jump, like sort of flying jump kicks where they were frozen in midair while really that sort of Yuan Wu-Ping choreography became insanely popular. Yeah, I think The Matrix definitely wins in that regard. The film is basically parody, cloned, and that's the ultimate form of flattery. So, I agree, The Matrix. All right, let's jump to the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Ward, named after the infamous sequel. (laughs) The what? Milking the Speed Cow Dry Ward, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, could you make a sequel to either of these films? Like, if a gun was pressed to your forehead and you had to, how would you make it? Well, we know the answer with The Matrix. We saw the result. How about a sequel to The Matrix Revolutions or a sequel to Dark City? I mean, I quite like that Dark City resolves itself pretty definitively. I mean, I guess the characters could try and figure out how or why they're on the floating disc in the middle of space and maybe... John Murdoch could try and sort of pilot it back to Earth as more strangers turn up to thwart him or something. Yeah, I think- Maybe. The danger of any sequel to a film like this is the same danger you see with characters like Superman or Captain Marvel from Marvel's recent film, is that if a character becomes all too powerful at the end, they become the winner, which is great. We see that with Neo basically becoming Superman at the end of the film. He can basically transcend the rules of gravity and fly- And in Dark City, John Murdoch breaks the whole thing open and actually develops the same powers as Mr. Hand and Mr. Book and so on, but then actually can defeat them. So, he's more powerful than them. But then Mm. as a sequel, where do you go, right? Because what are the stakes? And at the end of The Matrix, he flies and jumps into 
Smith and explodes Smith. I'm pretty sure in the sequels, Neo never jumps into the agents again and explodes them so easily, does he? No, the way they handle it. gave him that power and then, oh, let's just forget about that. Yeah, the way they handle it is basically to have 100 Mr. Smiths turn up in that burly brawl and the idea being that, okay, if Neo can defeat one Mr. Smith, we need to throw 100 more at him. And in something like Captain Marvel, they deal with it by basically having Captain Marvel. We'll see actually with a sequel to Captain Marvel, but in the Avengers Endgame uh, film, she's basically absent because she's just too busy with her scheduling issue to be around to help out. <laughs> and if she was yeah. around, you know, she'd save the day way too easily. And Superman, same problem, right? Except for Kryptonite, there's no other way to pull him down. So you're always coming back to kryptonite, 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 or maybe emotionally blackmailing him or emotionally tying him down with his love for Lois. I think the same thing applies to The Matrix Reloaded and to Dark City. So I think these films, I don't know, it's arguable whether they deserve a sequel, but they're hard to do sequels for. At least in The Matrix, the machines can go after Neo in the real world. So there is jeopardy there for him. While he may be nigh indestructible within The Matrix, He's just a regular sort of fella in the real world. He's on a ship somewhere flying around in the centre of the earth or whatever. Yeah, you're 100% right, Gabe, which explains why in Revolutions, most of the film is set with basically that Lord of the Rings type battle with lots of people, those squiddy type robots (laughs) versus humans in Revolutions because that's where the stakes are much more equal and Neo has been disempowered of his superpower. Yeah, good point. All right. The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch the movie. So for me, this is terrible. I completely forgot that William Hurt was in Dark City. <laughs> that whole sort of detective plot had sort of just disappeared from your head. I actually forgot who was that actor in that role. I recall the stuttering and stammering of Kiefer. I recall the journey of Matt Murdock. I recall Melissa George because at the time, 20 years ago, it was shocking that she was topless briefly, having been a tame soap star. But that character to me is pretty unmemorable and I just didn't place William Hurt as that character. I mean, it's been probably 10 years since I last watched Dark City. But, yeah, I'm embarrassed to say that was my Memento Award winner. How about I love you? the way that his character kind of just gets – realises what the city is and then is just sort of pushed out into space and that's the end of him. Yeah, totally. I quite like that. His sort of end is oddly anticlimactic. Oh, very much so. He's just sucked away. There's no yeah. massive confrontation. Yeah. How about The Matrix? Apart from rewatching it and spotting a bunch of people that I know, like from the Australian film industry, like, oh, I know that bloke. He's a popular stunt guy. I've worked with him. Apart from that, it was. it's also, I must have seen it so many times, it was also memorable. That I just know the movie kind of too well, I guess. I've seen it too many times for anything ever to be like, wow, that's right, they fight in a dojo or whatever. Yeah, I'm the same. Like, I know that film so well inside and out that if I watch it again, except, as you say, perhaps recognising someone you know from the local Australian film industry, I don't watch that film and go, oh, I can't remember that scene at all. Like, the film is choreographed, storybooked, storyboarded, sorry, so well, it's sort of infused in my brain. Like, I'm not surprised. The only thing that I kind of like laugh at when I watch it again are just small details like the handing out of mescaline or whatever that drug is, which is basically the digital drug on a mini disc, which was, oh, yeah. which, right. which was the kind of up-and-coming digital music format at the time. But, you know, I always recall that. I just kind of like smile at and re-remember. But that film's memorable. All right. Let's then jump to behind the scenes. We've discussed budget already. Casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. I couldn't find anything describing who 
an alternative first choice was for Dark City, but the classic one is Will Smith for The Matrix. And that's an interesting alternative reality where he's in this film. Can you imagine Will Smith as Neo? Yeah, Will Smith's a very charismatic actor, particularly back in the mid-90s. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I mean, I actually don't have a problem with that version of that film. And in fact, dare I say the unpopular opinion, would a version of The Matrix with Will Smith be better? Because I know people applaud Neo's performance in the sense that his personality or his acting style suits the idea of this guy who is just lost at sea and a bit kind of clueless Bill and Ted style. (laughs) I actually would have liked to have seen Will Smith in this film because Will Smith, I think, would have actually challenged Morpheus and been more disbelieving and I think there would be more kind of pushback and that could have been actually quite interesting. I don't see Will Smith sucking everything in and believing everything that Morpheus and Trinity say Holus bolus. I see him basically being a bit of a smart ass and a bit more challenging, a bit like his performance in iRobot. Directed by Alex Proyas. Nice. Yeah, I think it would be a, just another interesting version of the movie. I agree. It certainly isn't like, well, that that would suck or anything, right? It'd be, be kind of interesting. Yeah, totally. How about um, marketing methodology, madness, and missteps? Any way that these films were advertised, promoted, that you think damage them in any regard. I mean, certainly not the Matrix. No, I think right? the Matrix actually is an example of how to do it. I mean, at the time it was head of the curve. As you mentioned, there were so many commercial tie-ins. There was the graphic novel comic. There was the behind-the-scenes book that I have, your book. There was <laughs> even the fact that when it came to the sequels, they actually created an entire film compilation of animated films called The Animatrix. I mean, That film, I think, was a lesson at the time, which still holds true today as to actually how to promote a film ahead of its release. I think Dark City's only problem was perhaps it wasn't advertised or promoted enough. Yeah, although I recall the trailer being kind of cool. There's some pretty interesting imagery in the movie that I certainly remember when I was a kid watching the trailer, like the shot from within the bathtub where he puts the goldfish in and the sort of high-angle shot of the light swinging. I guess maybe those things are certainly not as mind-blowing as someone leaning backwards while bullets fly past them, are they? No, exactly. I don't think it's as stunning in that regard, and thus it doesn't actually have any visuals that are as iconic or, I guess, cool, like the classic cool visual. Uh, And also the trailer for Dark City basically shows you the end of the film as well. It shows you Murdoch tuning against the strangers and blowing up their underground thing. So, I don't know, like a lot of people, I hate it when trailers seem to give away too much and maybe it sort of didn't give away enough and gave away too much. Yeah, possibly. I agree with that. All right, let's jump to Dream Third Movie. Gabe, taking in the best elements of both movies, such as plot, cast, director, etc., Pitch me your dream third movie about a hero discovering that he or she is in a constructed artificial world. And, you know, feel free to add any elements that elevate it to be the best version of that concept of all time. Is there anything, if we took the best elements of both films, that could possibly make a dream third film? I guess this might not be exactly what you're asking, but if you put the music from Dark City into The Matrix, that would be awesome. I would argue that that would make The Matrix better. It would be really cool just to move the score across. Yeah, it's controversial. I actually love the music of The Matrix. I like the contemporary music. I like the classical score. I don't know. Gee, that's hard to say. Yeah, but the score's not that memorable. The songs are cool, like that Propellerhead song when they're Spy Break or whatever when they're doing the shootout. That's memorable. But I can't really recall the score from The, the Matrix. But I do love. Oh, I would actually that. argue that it is memorable. In fact, when I've actually done screenwriting, right, you okay. and I have written stuff together, and 
I've actually played this in the background whilst writing, and I actually do find it pretty evocative. And I really feel it's tuned, excuse the pun, not tuning as in Dark City, but the score is totally tuned to what's on screen in The Matrix really well. So what's that song they play in that elevator scene where there's that huge shoot em up in the foyer of the building? Yeah, is that break. Spy Break? Yeah. By Propellerheads? But would you switch, for instance, The Strangers for the Agents in a third movie? You know, would you trade out any element like that? Oh, interesting. I mean, look, Hugo Weaving's performance is so iconic. It's pretty, I, I know. I would say, would you downplay any of the performances of any sort or amplify any performance? Is there any performance you think which should be turned up slightly or turned down that would make a better third movie? Well, I guess given our disagreement over Kiefer Sutherland's uh, performance <laughs> Dr. Daniel P. Schreiber, I'm not so sure. I think everyone feels like across both movies, like they could sort of all be acting in the same movie yeah. in a way. If you dropped him into the world of The Matrix, although you may disagree, I'd yeah, buy okay. him there. All right. Okay, mate. I think that brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this, this week? Not that you'd want to, but Twitter, I suppose, at Gabe Dowrick. And any particular shows that you're working on to point our listeners to? No, no. Just watch broadcast TV. <laughs> All right. I'm uh, at Ben Phelps on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find all my podcasts, including Twin Movies and What Happens Next, curated within one mega podcast called Ben Phelps Show in the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Gabe, thanks so much. This was fun. Been a pleasure. Two of my favourite films and so nice to do it on the 20 and 21st anniversary. True. Awesome. Thank you for having me again. Awesome. Thanks for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take care and stay tuned for our Twin Movies Battle very soon. Mm